We read the Holy Scriptures together this morning in John 19. In the first part of John 19, we read about the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate and his condemnation and his crucifixion. We're going to begin reading this morning at verse 23 and read to the end of the chapter. John 19, verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, They break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred-pound weight, Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, 
therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. We read the word of God that far. We consider together this morning in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 16. You can find that in the back of the Psalter on page 10. The Catechism asks us, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he also buried? Thereby to prove that he was really dead. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. That so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is there added he descended into hell? That in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we finish our treatment of the fourth article of the Apostles' Creed, in which we confess together that Jesus Christ our Lord, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Last Sunday we considered the first part of this article, we considered together the fact that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, and we looked at the meaning of that. This Sunday, we turn our attention to the rest of the article, and we consider the meaning of the fact that he died, he was buried, and he descended into hell. The Son of God came down from heaven and took upon himself human nature in the fullness of time some 2,000 years ago. And when he did so, he humiliated himself, as our Lord's Supper form says, unto the deepest reproach and pains of hell, in body and soul, on the tree of the cross, when he cried out with a loud voice, 
My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that we would be accepted of God and never be forsaken of him. That's what we are considering together this morning in this Lord's Day. As we look at the death, burial, and descent of Christ into hell, we must understand at the outset that we are looking at the deepest steps of his humiliation. We're looking here at the lowest place to which he humbled himself, the very depth of the depths of his humiliation and suffering for us, for you, for me, to save us from our sins and to give us everlasting life. And therefore, what we're looking at this morning is the very heart of the gospel itself. Because as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the gospel that he received and that he delivered to them can be stated in these simple words. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried. And he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There is the heart of the gospel. This morning we preach Christ crucified, dead, buried, and descended into hell for our sins. The theme of the sermon will be understanding the death and burial of Christ. We notice, first of all, the meaning of Christ's death and burial. And then secondly, seeking to apply that to ourselves, we consider the meaning of our death and burial. And then, finally, we look at the descent of Christ into hell. A study of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, reveals to us that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, when he was about 33 years old, died on a cross outside of the city of Jerusalem in Palestine, on a hill known as Golgotha, the place of a skull, with two other malefactors next to him on their crosses. These four Gospels reveal to us the historical fact that Jesus Christ died on that cross. Jesus did not merely suffer on that cross for a while. He did not merely bleed on that cross for a while. He didn't just hang on that cross for a while and then somehow escape and walk away alive. Jesus Christ was not helped down from that cross by his friends and disciples when no one was looking, so that, in fact, he didn't actually die. But the Gospels teach us the very facts of the case that Jesus of Nazareth, who was nailed to the cross, also died on the cross. While he was hanging on the cross, he came face to face with the dreadful reality of the suffering of death, which God imposed upon the human race after the fall of man into sin because of our sin and as the dreadful punishment of our sin. On the cross, Jesus came face to face with the last enemy, with death, an enemy that we have not yet faced, as those who still walk in the land of the living. Jesus faced it, and Jesus plunged into the abyss of death on that cross. For example, in Matthew 27, verse 50, we read, 
Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And in John 19, verse 30, which we read, we read this, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and yielded up the ghost. He bowed his head, rather, and gave up the ghost. And in Luke 13, verse, or rather Luke 23, verse 46, we read this, When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. The Jews saw those three men still hanging on the cross and knowing that it was a special Sabbath day because of the Feast of Passover. They demanded that Pilate would have them killed. So he sent his soldiers to batter their legs, to break their legs, so that they would not be able to push up on the ledge under their feet, which would hasten their death. They came and broke the legs of the one and broke the legs of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. And so they did not break his legs in fulfillment of the scriptures, which said, not a bone of his body will be broken. Rather, one of the soldiers, in his sadistic cruelty, took his spear and pierced it into his side, even though he was already dead. And John says, I was there, and I saw it, and I saw blood and water come gushing out of the side of our Savior. Jesus was truly dead. But the Gospels also reveal something extremely important, something very unique and very amazing about the death of Jesus Christ. Namely this, that Christ died willingly, voluntarily, purposefully. Jesus did not fight and struggle to survive while he was on that cross. Jesus did not beg and plead that somebody would help him down from that cross. Jesus did not use his own divine power to help himself down from the cross so that he could keep on living in this world. To keep on living is the natural inclination of every living creature on this earth, man, animal, and plant. But Jesus on the cross denied that natural inclination that was also in himself. He denied it. He sacrificed it. He put it aside. And he sacrificed his life on earth. That's the meaning when it says he gave up the ghost. When it says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and he yielded up the ghost. The idea is that by a decision of his own will, and by an act of his own power, he yielded up his human spirit. So that his human soul passed out of his human body by his own decision and by his own act. He gave up his life. It was not taken from him. He gave up his life as a sacrifice, willingly and voluntarily. And when his human body passed, when his human soul passed out of his human body, that is when he entered into and was swallowed up by the darkness and the abyss of death. 
Jesus did not die or give up his life as some because he lost the will to live. He didn't lose the will to live. He denied his will to live. There are some who lose the will to live. They become disillusioned with life. They become despairing about life. They give up on life. And so they let themselves die. Or they even kill themselves. They feel like a failure. Others stoically resign themselves to death as something that they cannot prevent. But none of these things was true of Jesus. Jesus had the will to live, the inclination to live, the desire to live, but he denied it. And he gave up his life. He laid it down as a sacrifice. What we must see is that the one hanging on the cross is the eternal and natural Son of God come down into human nature, clothing himself in human flesh and blood for this purpose, that he might give his life a ransom for us, so that he might give up his life as a sacrifice for all those whom God had given to him before the foundation of the world. To save us. The proclamation of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He died for a very specific purpose. He died to save us from our sins. Jesus himself knew that and he said to his disciples in Matthew 16 and Mark 10, that he was going up to Jerusalem for this purpose of being killed. He was going up to Jerusalem to give his life a ransom for many, not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life. In Romans 5, verse 6, the apostle says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, And in Galatians 1, verse 4, he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. And 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. This was the purpose of his suffering and death. As the Catechism puts it, the reason that the Son of God had to die and humble himself to the death of the cross, was that there was no other way for him to make satisfaction for our sins to the justice and truth of God, the death of the Son of God, the death of God himself in human flesh, was the only way. And God ordained it to be so, so that he would receive the greatest glory as the one who came to save us from our sins. He died as a satisfaction for our sins, as a payment, an atonement, a ransom. Jesus did not die on the cross because it was the only ransom price that the devil would accept. As if the devil, who was the Lord over us fallen, sinful human beings had such power and authority over us that God had to do something to appease the devil, that God had to do something to pay the devil off. 
And the only payment that he would receive was the death of the Son of God. And that only by the Son of God giving up his life would the devil release us from those chains. But rather, the reason he had to die was that this was the only ransom price that God would accept. This was the only ransom that could satisfy the justice and truth of God. This was the only way that there could be salvation, forgiveness of the sins of the world, of elect humanity in all nations. Therefore, Christ died for us. Christ came down into our flesh and stepped into our place and took upon himself our sins, every single one of them, and gave himself to the suffering of death on the cross and gave up his life that we might live. The death of Christ on the cross, then, is the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. In John 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. There's no greater love than for someone to give up his life so that his friends might live. For someone to deny his own pleasure and joy and life so that others would be able to have pleasure and and happiness and life. But what Jesus did is much greater than that. As Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8, God commendeth his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not for friends, but for enemies. Not for the righteous, but for the ungodly. There's no greater love that has ever been demonstrated in all of history than the death of the Son of God for us miserable, poor, undeserving sinners, the enemies of God. God so loved the world, the fallen, miserable, wicked, wretched world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that we who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And therefore, when Jesus bowed his head, as John tells us in the chapter that we read, and John was standing there watching and listening, and he saw Jesus having taken the vinegar, bowing his head and saying, It is finished. Those were not the words of a man who had failed in his mission. That was the victorious cry of the Savior of sinners who had accomplished what he had set out to do fully and completely. The salvation of you and me. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? who died for sinners, that we might live. There's no other escape. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And when Jesus gave up the ghost and bowed his head and his body went limp, 
Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate and begged permission to take down the body of Jesus and Nicodemus with him. Pilate granting him the permission, he came and lovingly took down Jesus' body from the cross and with the help of Nicodemus, wrapped his body in the linen cloths with the spices according to the Jewish custom. And together they carried Jesus' body, not a very far distance, because there near Golgotha was a garden. And in that garden there was a new sepulcher in which no man had ever been laid, that Joseph had purchased with his own money. And they laid the body of Jesus in that sepulcher. And they rolled a stone over the mouth of the sepulcher, plunging him into the darkness of the grave. And thus, Jesus, who died, was also buried. And there he remained, in the dark realm of the dead, for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And the Catechism says, Why? Why was he buried? And the answer, to prove thereby that he was really dead. You see, you do not leave a corpse out in the open. If someone is really dead, if someone is pronounced dead, you don't leave that lifeless body laying out in the open for the birds to eat. But you wrap that body up and you bury it in the ground, in the earth, in the tomb. Burial is a proof that a man or a woman is really dead. Jesus was buried to prove that he was really dead. And why is that so significant? Because as the proof that he was really dead, the burial of Jesus is the gospel to us that he truly fully completed our salvation by his death on the cross. He truly entered into the full reality of death for you and for me. He did not avoid any aspect of death, but he plunged himself into the fullness of that death. And therefore, the full payment has been made to God. It is finished, truly finished. Salvation is sure. Now, how does that all apply to us in regard to our death and burial? The Catechism goes on to ask this question. Since Christ died and was buried for us, for our sins, then why must we still die? Why must we still face the last enemy of death, that dreadful reality. Why must we give up our ghost, our spirit in us, as he did, and be buried six feet under the ground? That question arises in our minds when we contemplate the meaning of death and the meaning of what Christ did. Because if the meaning of death is not, as the evolutionist says, that it is merely the natural end of life, 
But if the meaning of death is as the scripture says, that it is the divine punishment for sin, if that's true, and you ponder that in your mind, it's not the natural end of life, it is the divine punishment for sin, if that's true. And if this is also true, that the Son of God came down into our flesh and suffered that punishment for us in all of its fullness, not for himself, but for us, not for his sins, but for our sins. If that's true, then why do we still have to die? Why do we still have to be buried if he was buried for us? Why doesn't God just take us directly to heaven after he's finished uh, with us living on this earth? Why doesn't he just take us straight to heaven in body and soul? Why do we have to pass through death into the grave? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever wondered about that? If you ponder those two great truths, then you will at some point wonder about that question. There's mystery there. And maybe we won't ever fully know the answer to that mystery. But God in his love and care for us does not leave us entirely in the dark, but in the scriptures gives us an answer. And the catechism encapsulates that answer when it says, our death is not a satisfaction for sin, but an abolishing of sin, indwelling sin, and a passage into eternal life. Our Lord Jesus Christ said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. There is a sense in which the believer in Jesus Christ does not die. There is a sense in which we never die. There's a sense in which we can look at death at the end of life's journey and say, that's not death. I won't be dying when I come to the end of my life on earth. Because those who believe shall never die, he said. He doesn't just mean that after we die, then we will never die. But he means we will never die. Then the apostle goes on and writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 10, God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Jesus died for us, so that whether we wake or sleep, we will live with him. Right now we're awake. At the end of our earthly life, we will sleep. But whether we wake or sleep, we will live with him. So God puts into our mouths this hopeful confession, Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Romans 8.38 and 39. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that we are able to face the last enemy 
1 Corinthians 15, 55-57. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The strength of death is sin. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why must we still die and be buried? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins. The satisfaction is complete. The atonement is complete. The punishment has been suffered. The reason the Christian dies is not to pay for his sins. It's not because there are still a few sins left that we have to pay for, that Jesus paid for most of it, but we have to pay for a little of it. No, it's not a payment for sin. What then is the reason? Why does God still require us to pass through? Because God, according to his eternal good pleasure, was evidently determined to glorify himself in this highest and greatest way, that he would make all things work together for good to his children. All things. He was determined to glorify himself by turning all evils to our advantage. Not just the sickness, not just the poverty, not just the disappointments of life, not just the sufferings of life, but even death itself at the end of life. God was determined also to take death. That greatest evil turn it to our advantage. God was determined to take death, which he himself designed to be the vehicle that would transport the sinner down into hell. That's what death is. God's vehicle to transport the sinner down into hell, which is what the sinner deserves. God has taken that vehicle of death and turned it into something that transports the believer into heaven. God has taken that door which, when opened, leads into the flames of everlasting wrath. And he has made it a door which, when it opens, leads into the everlasting life of heaven. God is glorified when we believers put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in life and in death. And we find our greatest comfort in him, in life and in death. And what a comfort that is. What a comfort as we face our own death, as we face the death of our loved ones. As we drive past the cemetery time and time again and we look out over the field and we see all the gravestones lined up there one after another row upon row upon row and we see all the dead buried what a comfort when we contemplate the fact that there go I and there go we all but 
when that last enemy of death rises up to devour me. It will not be able to touch me because the Lord will take my soul up into glory. So I will simply fall asleep. And I will sleep in that grave. Yes, from all appearances, it looks like people die, Christians die, and their bodies dissolve in the grave. But the reality for the Christian is, we go to sleep in the grave. And when Jesus comes again, he will raise our bodies from the dead. In the second place, the Catechism teaches us that the benefit we receive from the crucifixion, death, and burial of Christ is that we are crucified, dead, and buried with him. That is, our old man. When Christ was crucified, when Christ died, when Christ was buried, all that time he represented us Just as Adam represented us when he fell into sin, Christ represented us on the cross. Therefore, in God's eyes, we were all there with him at the cross. We were all there, as it were. He had us, as it were, in his arms there at the cross. All of us. And as he is being crucified, and as he is dying, and as he is being buried, he's holding us there so that Although we're not experiencing it, we're reaping the benefits of it. As he is there suffering and paying the penalty for our sin, we're receiving the benefit that we don't have to pay that penalty. We were there with Christ, not as righteous men and women, but as sinners. We were there with Christ at the cross in our old self, our old, sinful, wicked, corrupt, depraved nature. That's how we were there with Christ at the cross. And that's how we were crucified. That's how we were dead and buried, in our old man. The old man, with all of its corrupt inclinations to pride and to anger and to lust and to get drunk and to get high and to be arrogant and to be selfish with all of the corrupt inclinations that our flesh has to boast against others, to put others down, to commit adultery and fornication and other sexual sins, to covet our neighbor's house and our neighbor's wife, to be discontent, to complain, to whine, and all of our sinful inclinations. We were there on the cross with Jesus with all of those sinful inclinations, and we were crucified with him. dead and buried with him. That means our inclination to pride, to arrogance, to anger, to lust, to envy, was crucified, dead, buried with Christ. And that's where the old man is. In the grave with Christ. Buried with Christ in the sepulcher. Which is why if we are true believers, if you are a true believer... Not a fake believer. Not a sham believer. Not a pretend believer. If you're a true believer, 
truly united to the Christ who was crucified, dead, and buried, then that means that you are no longer dominated by the old man of sin. You are no longer controlled and enslaved by the corrupt inclinations of the flesh. And you may never say, I can't help it that I do this sin. If you're a Christian, you may never say that. I can't help it. That's a lie. If you are a true believer, that means you do still sin, yes. We do still commit all of those sins, but we hate them. We despise them. We don't minimize them. We don't excuse them. We don't justify them. We repent of them. We fight against them. We flee from them. That's how a true believer behaves. It means that no longer being dominated by the corrupt inclinations of our flesh, we are free to offer ourselves as living sacrifices of praise to God. That means, beloved, in all aspects of our life. You see, the Christian religion is not just a church religion, not just a Sunday religion. The true Christian religion is a whole life religion. It's a, it's a religion on Sunday and throughout the week. It's a religion for when we're at work and when we're on vacation. We don't ever take a vacation in this summertime season when we go out here and there and do this and that. We don't take a vacation from living the Christian life. We don't say, well, most of the year I focus and try hard to follow Christ, but I can take a little time for myself to sin. Because the corrupt inclinations of the flesh do not reign over us. Every season of the year, every stage of our life, at work, at play, at home, and at church. Finally, Article 4 of the Apostles' Creed says that he descended into hell. That's the last step of his humiliation, the deepest step, the darkest phase. What does the Catechism mean by that? The Catechism teaches us that we do not mean by that that he descended into the grave in his body. Some might think that it means that. He descended into hell because in the original, the word hell is Hades. And they might say Hades represents the realm of the dead. And the realm of the dead is the grave. So all we're saying there is that after he died on the cross, his body was buried in the tomb. That's not what we mean because we already stated that. Crucified, dead, and buried. We already said that. He was buried. But then there's one more thing that's added. He descended into hell. And in the second place, the meaning is not that after he gave up the ghost, his spirit went down to hell. Because Jesus said to the malefactor, today you will be with me in paradise. When he gave up the ghost, his spirit went to paradise. His body went to the grave. His spirit did not go to hell. 
But the Catechism and the Reformed faith point us in this direction as to the meaning of that phrase. That Christ, throughout the whole of his sufferings, but especially on the cross, especially on the cross, when he was still on the cross, was plunged into inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies. He descended into hell when he was on the cross. He was still on the cross, but he descended into hell. Because hell is a spiritual place. Hell is not just there or just over there, but God can take hell and move it wherever he wants. And God brought hell to the cross. That's what he did. That's the meaning of the darkness. When for three hours there was a terrible darkness that cloaked the earth and the cross. That was the darkness of hell. God brought hell to the cross and Jesus descended into it. And that's why at the end of those three hours, he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For what else is hell but the outer darkness where the sinner is utterly forsaken by God for all eternity and must live there in the dark alone under the wrath of God? That's hell. Inexpressible anguish, inexpressible pain and terror and hellish agony. That's what Jesus suffered for us. Nothing less. And do you see what a comfort that is? In our greatest temptations, what's, what's your greatest temptation? You say, well, I struggle with this sin or I struggle with that sin. Okay, yes, we have many different temptations. But what's the greatest? Isn't the greatest temptation that because of all these sins that I commit and continue to commit, I'm going to go to hell. That must be the greatest temptation. That must be the deepest and darkest possible thought that a person could have if he truly understands what hell is. And the Catechism says, it is added that he descended into hell so that in my greatest temptations, in those deepest and darkest moments, when I doubt my own salvation, I may wholly comfort myself in this, that Christ, by his hellish sufferings, has delivered me from all the agony and pains of hell. As we said in the introduction, our Lord's Supper form teaches that Christ entered into the deepest reproach and pains of hell when he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. So that 
we would be accepted of God and never forsaken. Accepted and never forsaken. The greatest comfort that we could have is that God does not reject me and will never reject me, but God accepts me because of the bitter sufferings of Christ. And that's the gospel, and that's the comfort. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ, beloved. Day in and day out, and in your darkest and deepest fears, look to Christ, grasp hold of Christ by faith, and comfort yourself in that. Amen. Our gracious Father, we give thanks for the gospel of a glorious salvation through a glorious Savior. The glory be unto thee. Unto us is the shame, unto thee is the glory. But unto thee is also the glory for taking away our shame through the blessed death and blood of our Savior. May we live, Father with a holy hatred for sin, that we put sin away. We strive to fight against it. We don't make light of it. Grant, O Lord, that we would offer our lives, living sacrifices of praise unto thee, all the days of our lives. And all this we ask, not because we are worthy, but for 